There, there's a whole confluence of events and reasons as to why you are getting this sermon today. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, this, this past week, um, we celebrated my one-year anniversary of being your, your pastor. I think it was Monday or Tuesday, but that was technically the time. And so, uh, one year ago today, I preached this particular sermon uh, at, uh, at the presbytery in order to become ordained as a, as a, as a pastor in your church. It was my candidating sermon uh, and so I want I want to give you you know for the last year I've kind of had this in my back pocket in a in case like the world falls apart on a week and there's no prep time or anything and it hasn't happened I've been able to actually prepare a sermon every week so I thought on the one year anniversary uh, that that might be a, a neat time to bring this to you and then second we have a, a two week gap between series between sermon series this week being one and next next week uh, Mark's going to be preaching and I won't be here and so there's just a, a one week slot kind of a what do I do with this and thought this might be a, a neat thing uh, and so I want to before I start I just want to give you a little bit of background as to how this sermon came to be um, when you become a candidate for ordination the last thing you do is you get grilled with like hundreds of questions by a committee of the presbytery and then the whole presbytery floor with all the pastors of the of the presbytery there you know you've got like a hundred some people in the room grilling you but one of the things you have to do is you have to preach to that group of people and so it's probably the most intimidating sermon that you'll preach in your life, trying to be a pastor, being critiqued by a room this size, just full of pastors and elders. And for months and months and months, I'd been racking my brain about what should I preach on, what should I preach on. And my, my lovely wife jokingly at some point said to me, you know, you, you should preach on the passage that you humorously say is your favorite Bible passage. And that's 2 Kings 2, 23 through 25. And if you're not laughing yet, that's because you have no idea what 2 Kings 2, 23 through 25 is. Um, you'll learn, trust me. And when she first told me, I laughed it off very quickly. Uh, and she said it again, and I laughed it off very quickly. But then I, I thought that, you know, I, I hadn't really ever studied the passage. It was just something I threw out humorously. And so I want to, this morning, just give you really quickly, we're going to stand, and I'm going to give you... Uh, that, that word, and then we're going to talk about why, and as soon as you read it, you're going to understand why I am so, not hesitant, but awkward about this Bible passage. I put this one, this Bible passage to me goes in the camp of, this is in the Bible? Right? And I love to say this passage to middle school students who say the Bible's boring. Right? This is one of those, no, no it ain't. All right, so let's stand together and let's take a look at why in 2 Timothy God says all scripture is useful for teaching. It's all given by God. All of it is God-breathed. When he says that, he really means it. Every verse in scripture, even this one, is useful for teaching and training in righteousness. Let's take a look at 2 Kings 2, 23-25. He went up there, this is Elisha, he went up there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a seat. A couple of things I love about this passage right off the bat. Number one, don't make fun of bald people. 
You haven't lived until you've read this passage to a group of middle school boys who just made fun of your head and watched them go, huh. like, do you have that power? Yes, I do. <laughs> All youth pastors have that power. The bears are waiting in the woods. All I got to do is say the word. I got them on the phone. No, right? But the reason, the, the thing I really love about this passage is, in, in a joking manner, kind of the nonchalant way. It says that this happened, right? They make fun of him. He, he curses them in the name of the Lord. These she-bears come out and kill the 42 kids. And then the, the next verse is, from there he went on to this place. You can picture Elijah going, watching this all unfold and going, mm-hmm. And then just moving on with his life as if something insane hadn't just happened, right? Now, I said that this was a humorous thing. The first time Britta suggested this to me, that I should preach this before a presbytery, I thought she was crazy. And then I studied the passage. And then I thought, oh man, this actually is a, there's a sermon here. And then the more I studied it, the more evident that it became that it was something that really ought to be worth preaching. And it, and it was a gamble that paid off. And I think why it paid off is because if I had preached on any passage from the Gospels, you would have had pastors in the room grilling me for days about the things I'd said. I didn't get a single question about this sermon when I was done with it. <laughs> and it was magical and delightful. But let me, let me throw some things your way. As, as I studied, one of the things I, I realized is that this passage isn't about bald people. It's not about bears. It's not even about Elisha. But it's about the holiness and the sovereignty of God from the beginning through this occurrence and all the way to the end of the age. But to get there, and this is why I chose it, we have to use every single biblical tool at our disposal to understand what's happening. We have to use original language this morning. We have to use cultural context this morning. We have to look at the larger literary context of where this passage sits in the book of 2 Kings. And so let's pray together for a second, because with a passage like this, I feel like we need it. And then we'll dig in together and see if we can't come up with what the Lord might be saying to us. Lord, we thank you for your word, even when it seems odd. And we pray that you would illuminate it to us, that through your Holy Spirit we might understand where we haven't understood before, that we might see what bald people and bears and children have to do with the glory and the sovereignty of God. We love you and we praise you. And together, all those people said, Amen. Now, in context, 2 Kings 2 uh, is towards the end of the ministry life of Elijah. Elijah was the prophet commissioned by the Lord, and it's, he's been taking up to heaven. If, you, if you've read that passage, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But Elijah is one of the people in Scripture, one of the few people in Scripture that the Lord actually takes up to heaven in a whirlwind. He doesn't die the way any other person in Scripture generally dies, the way you and I will die. We don't have a recorded death of the prophet Elijah. He was there, he was doing the work of the Lord, and the Lord took him up to heaven in a whirlwind. And so there's a vacancy that is left, and Elisha, don't confuse them, Elijah, previous guy, Elisha, she-bear guy, is the one that is chosen by the Lord to take over the ministry of Elijah. Some context about Elijah. Elijah was profiting in the northern kingdom, right? Shortly you have David and then, you know, Saul, David, Solomon. The kingdom after that begins to split. You have a northern and a southern kingdom. And in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam creates two new cities that are the center of worship in the northern kingdom. Because it was Jerusalem, but the south has Jerusalem. So they need their own, essentially, capital cities. And he creates two of them. In the north of the northern kingdom, he creates Dan. 
And in the south of the northern kingdom, he creates Bethel. And Bethel is the city that we find at the start of our passage today. Right? What's going on in Bethel? Well, the northern kingdom really quickly fell into idol worship. And one of the things you started to see is the, the practice of God's worship in these two cities was getting more and more mixed and blended in with other things. You had golden calves that were set up to be worshipped. The proper worship of God was no longer happening in these cities. Instead, it was distorted with this introduction of idolatry and a mixture of a bunch of customs of Baal worship. Right? So Elijah was preaching against this false religion of the, of the god Baal. And, and you, might have, you might know the famous passage. There's a, there's a standoff kind of at the height of his ministry before he gets taken up in a whirlwind where he's facing off against the prophets of the god Baal. Right? They each build this pile of, of woods, they, and, they, and they say, you know, let's pray to our gods and see which one's pile actually burns. And you have the people of Baal build their pile, and they're kind of swarmed around it, and they're calling on their god to light the pile on fire, and nothing happens. And, you know, you have Elijah over here starts making fun of them. He says, well, maybe if he, you need to speak louder, he can't hear you. Right? And eventually they give up, and so then Elijah takes... The whole pile and has it doused with water so that it's impossible to light. And then just simply prays, you know, Lord, show them that you are who you say you are. And, and, the God, and God not just lights the pile on fire, but consumes it with flames. And it, it's a demonstration for once and for all for those people that God is the real God and Baal is the fake God. But it doesn't work because what we know about people that follow false religion, it doesn't matter how much evidence you confront them with. They're going to keep going the direction they're going. And so Baal worship was rampant even after Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. By the time we get to this prophetic ministry, by the time we get to 2 Kings 2.23, one of the things you see in Bethel is rampant, idolatrous, pagan worship. The whole city, in essence, was a giant middle finger to God. Everything it did, thought, said, was an insult to the God of the universe in every possible way. That's where we are. And so there's two issues that we have to grasp with the little bit that happens in this passage. The first is this. What is the language that surrounds this idea of the small boys? Did God kill 42 little boys with bears? Right? That's, that's a hard question, and we need to deal with it. Second, there's a contextual issue. What, if anything, what are these people saying to Elisha that would cause him to curse them, and more than that, that would cause God to send she-bears out of the woods to kill them? Like, if that happened today, it would be on global news as a massive tragedy, right? What, what could possibly have been? Is it really that they made fun of his hair? I've had my hair made fun of for years now. I, I, I've... I've sometimes gotten a little bit upset about it. Usually I think it's funny. But I've never had someone make fun of my hair and then been tempted to curse them to death in the name of the Lord. Right? So what's going on here? Are we really talking about a mockery for baldness? And the answer is no. So let's tackle these. First, the linguistic issue. The idea of God using she-bears to kill 42 kids is a really harsh thing to understand. But there's an issue with translation here that we have to get to. The Hebrew that is translated small boys is ne'arim ketanim. It's two words, two base words, na'ar and katan. Okay? Na'ar can be translated as adolescent, young man, young boy, or servant. 
Throughout Scripture, that word is translated in those ways in various places. In Genesis 14, 24, it's used, the word na'ar is used to describe Abraham's men that they used to rescue Lot. In 2 Kings 5, it's used to describe Naaman's wife's handmaid. In 1 Samuel, Jonathan's armor bearer who fights alongside of him in battle is described as a na'ar. And so the first thing we need to note is that it's not necessarily that it's always small boys. Right? These people are given this na'ar word as a description of themselves. They are full-fledged adults that are off fighting wars. These are, these are young men in their 20s, 30s that are off doing these things. And they're described as na'ar. The second word, katan, can be translated as small, young, insignificant, or maybe even in some places in scripture as immature, right? For instance, in, in 1 Samuel 5, uh, Saul is described as a grown man, but one of the languages that's used is katan, because in that moment, it's a question of maturity, not of age, right? In, in 1 Kings, Solomon describes himself as actually na'ar katon, or little man, while he's the king, right? And so what we see here, the point is this, small and young isn't always about age. It's usually, in scripture, more often about maturity or status, right? And so a na'ar katan would be a description of, could be a, a small boy, certainly. If you saw a small boy, that's how you would describe them. But it could also be a servant really low on the totem pole or a really, really immature leader who's 85 years old, right? Small in status and maturity, not necessarily in age. And so for this, a more likely scenario is that this, this was a group of a, a mob of, of 42 young servants of some kind, right? They were idolatrous worshipers of this god Baal within the city of Bethel. And perhaps they were some kind of servant of a low-ranking official within the, the church of Baal, the people that followed and, and practiced Baal pagan worship. These were the lowest of the totem pole. These were like the Baal worship apprentices, so to say. Most likely young men in their early to mid to late kind of 20s, maybe. You would think of like, think of a 25-year-old person, you know, who's a, who's a recent seminarian kind of guy. He's interning as a, as a pastoral intern somewhere. He's the lowest of the staff totem pole, right? That's who we're talking about. So the first thing to note is this isn't a passage about the violent killing of little children, this is a she-bear coming out, she-bears coming out of the woods to kill these young, immature, small-minded servants of the prophet Baal. So that's the linguistic issue. I always wanted to preach this sermon in like the first week of a Hebrew class. Like why you should learn Hebrew and Greek. Because it, sometimes it really matters, doesn't it? And I've always promised to you, I never pull Hebrew out in a sermon just to sound smart. I only pull it out when it actually makes a difference to the passage and it's really helpful for you to know. And I think this is an instance where we're going from killing little kids to going to kill idolatrous pagan servants in their 20s. I think we can all agree, big difference, right? So for those of us who have little children, you can breathe a little easier. God's generally not in the business of mauling three-year-olds. Right? Now, we have to deal with a, a conversation issue that we have with Elisha. And there's a couple things here. Um, they, they go and they jeer at him and they call him bald head, right? 
What does it mean to be called a bald head? There's a couple cultural things that, that play here. For one, to, to the idea of being a bald head was associated in, in a lot of places with various types of skin disease, such as leprosy, but we can't be sure. We're not 100% sure why they call him bald head, but we can assume that it was an insult geared towards this idea of being unclean, right? Because when you were a leper, you had to run around, there were leper colonies, and if you left them to go get food, you had to pronounce yourself unclean, unclean, as you would walk through the streets of the city so people knew to stay away from you. And so it was probably like a, if you were somebody to be like, man, you're just a dirty person, right? To say bald head would mean, yeah, you, you are so, you're, you're just like, ugh, it's like you have leprosy. That's likely what was meant. We don't know, but we can take some very good educated guesses. There's no other reason that there would be a mockery of bald people in Scripture. Right? God made very few perfect heads. The rest of them he covered with hair. I'm sorry, all of you who have hair. Can't all be as perfect on your head as... Sorry. Right? But that's the first thing. It's, it's a mockery of, of this idea of them feeling like he's, he is dirty to them. And the second thing is this. There's, there's two possible meanings to this phrase, go up, right? They say, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. There's two ways that we could interpret this. Both of them are kind of equally bad for Elisha. The first is that they're calling him to go up to the high place of the city, right? The golden calf would have been at the top of the city. And so one of the things that we surmise is that when they say, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head, they say, you dirty, dirty prophet, go up and offer the sacrifices to our God. They're jeering him to go and do their way of worship. They're encouraging him and pushing him to be idolatrous himself. Right? That's the first. The second possibility is that they're saying go up in the same way that Elijah was taken up. Right? We know that he was taken up in a whirlwind by God. All they knew was Elijah disappeared. He was a pain in their neck because he was proclaiming the real God, and then he was gone, and they kind of want Elisha to go away in the same way. What they're saying is, listen, why don't you go up out of here the same way that your, your predecessor did? Right? You're new. We don't know you. You don't have any street cred. Why would we listen to you? Why don't you either go up or worship the way we do, or get up out of here the way your boss did? That's what they're saying. And in saying that, what they're really doing is insulting God himself. This is God's chosen prophet. Right? We have a threat made to Elijah. The language that is used here is not just a making fun of in a light, mocking way. It's a threatening way. It's kind of a suggestion of, hey, why don't you get up out of here before we make you? Right? The next step and a logical conclusion of this conversation, if there hadn't been she-bears, would probably be for them to attack and beat Elisha up and cast him out of the city. Because they don't know him. He's a new, newly minted prophet of God. He doesn't have any credibility. The God's calling him to do things, but they don't know who he is, and they don't really know why they should listen to him. Right? Elijah had some miracles. He at least carried some weight and authority, but this guy is just like a puny understudy. Why would we ever listen to him? Let's beat him up and get him out of here. And here is the key. Certainly, if nothing else, it was a, a, a diss against Elisha's credibility and authority as a prophet of God. Right? Elisha was God's new chosen successor as a prophet. And he does not have the same street cred. But God 
resolves to uphold him. God resolves to keep him from harm, and God resolves to demonstrate very clearly the authority that he has. And so when these people come against Elisha, God's guy, with threats and mockery, God responds very clearly, decisively, and violently. So what does he do? He calls two bears to come out of nowhere, out of the woods, and tear the 42 servants to bits. And I can tell you that the rest of that city, watching that happen, what was the the predominant thing that goes throughout that city? Do not mess with God's prophet Elisha. You think anyone else called him a bald head for the rest of his life in that city? I don't think so either. It's it's important to notice that that Elisha is not the one who calls the she-bears. God is the one who sends them. All that Elisha does in response to their mockery and threats is to curse them in the name of the Lord. He's essentially saying, God, they are not faithful. I am trying to be faithful. They are belittling your name. They are tearing you down by tearing me down. And I just want everyone here to know that that is not the way it works. I stand for God, and let's see what happens. And he curses them in the name of the Lord, and the Lord is the one who chooses to have this really over-the-top response. Elisha's not a mean guy here. Elisha didn't know that the she-bears were going to come out. He's probably as surprised as they were. But the Lord comes in and does this. So what's actually happening here? Elisha is... In the city of Bethel, the center of, of, of worship for idolatry, and, and these worshipers are insulting him, and Elisha curses him, and God responds by vindicating him and giving him the credibility and the authority that he didn't have before. And so what does that do for us? How does it fit into the rest of kings and this whole biblical narrative of which we are a part? It shows us that God is willing to protect Elisha just as he protected Elijah just as he is willing to protect and defend his honor when it comes to you and I as followers of Christ. It demonstrates, it's this microcosm, this little fight scene that we have in 2 Kings is a microcosm of the giant battle that is being waged between the Lord and his kingdom and the enemy and his kingdom. And if we look at this passage, the thing that we should take away from it is don't mess with God's kingdom. Why? He and his people win. Every time, ultimately. This passage is a promise to us as the people of God. That when we step into a world that is filled with idolatry, when we step into a world that doesn't know him and worship him, when we faithfully proclaim the Lord as the world comes against us, it's not a promise that he's going to come have she-bears come out of the woods every time someone makes fun of your faith, but it is a big promise that God will uphold you if you are faithful to him. If not in this life, then in the next. Right? In the case of Elisha, it was in that life. He upheld him by killing a bunch of servants. If it's in the case of Elijah, well, he took him away from this world. And Elijah is in eternity and in rest with God right now. And someday we will get to meet with him and speak to him. And so was Elisha. 
And I can't wait to ask him what it was like when 42 servants were mauled in front of him and hear that story. And I want to see if he's actually mauled. But this is, a, this is a passage about the sovereignty of God through not just this passage, but human history. We serve a God who is in control at all times of all things and how they happen and when they happen and if they happen or don't. Nothing occurs in this world that isn't part of God's divine plan. The Lord isn't somehow out of control to allow things. When the worst of life comes our way, it's hard And it might not be in the moment comforting to hear this truth, but God is in the midst of that struggle. He is there. He is present. He is working. He is vindicating. He's working his kingdom out for his own glory in an ultimate sense. And if you are a follower of Christ, in the end, nothing can touch you. He will have your back the way he had Elisha's back. Because he is holy and sovereign. Holy in the sense that his prophets will not be mocked, and sovereign in the sense that throughout human history, he will be victorious, and what he wants to see will come to pass. Chad Bird, in a, in, in a blog post, uh, talks about this whole passage idea, and he says this, their fate, the 42 kids, was a preview of the serpent's eventual fate. Except it wouldn't be a bear that mauled the serpent, but a lamb, the lamb of God, who would take him down. The same God who protected Elisha, and established his authority in God's name, is the same God who protects his people to this day and for all days to come. This passage is a warning against mocking the bald. No. This is a passage against warning against mocking the God of the universe. Don't test him. Don't mock him. Stand fast and stand faithful and see what he does. He will uphold you. He will protect you. He will care for you. And he will love you. And he will carry you through to the next age and on to eternity where nothing can touch us. Let's pray. God, we, we sometimes stand in awe of your sovereignty. There, there's so often that we just, just are, are, are confronted with the holiness of who you are. And it's hard because there are times where you do crazy things, at least seemingly to us. But Lord, oh, that we worship a God who is powerful enough that he would tear down the false worshipers that come our way just in order to uphold us, to demonstrate how much he loves his people, how much he cares for them. Lord, it reminds us that you will go to any length. Lord, you are the one who leaves behind the 99 to go after and seek the one who is lost to bring them back to the fold. And we praise you that each and every one of us who call on the name of Christ have been brought back. That each and every one of us have been the one who has wandered off but that has been carried back. And that all you do is ask us to be faithful. And when we do, you promise that you will uphold us both now and in the age to come. And so we praise you for that confidence as we go out this morning that we can live as your people, divinely saved, divinely upheld by the power of God who can make all things come to pass. Be with us as we exit this place and go forth into the world. Be with us as we have conversations about your sovereignty and your holiness with other people around us. May they be filled with truth, but also with grace and with mercy as we share the gospel to all we meet. We love you. We praise you. And all his people said.
Amen.